Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We've been teaching for a number of weeks on the life of David. And uh, rather than just taking every little event that takes place in his life, we've been talking about some of the character traits and some of the things that made David a man after God's own heart. David is recognized to be the greatest of the kings of Israel. And um, um, I believe the reason for that is because the character that he showed and exhibited not only before God but before the people. Now, once uh, you know the, the story how that, um, uh, and we talked about this some weeks ago, about how that Samuel was instructed, Samuel the prophet was instructed to go to Jesse's house, David's father's house, and anoint the next king. Now, that was at the time that Saul was already king. And so God is identifying who's going to be the next king after Saul. And, and uh, the Lord's anointing had already departed from Saul at that point in time because of his disobedience. And um, so Samuel anoints David. And then it takes about 15 years, um, 13, 15 years, something, somewhere around there. We don't know exactly. But it takes a number of years before David ever becomes king, before he's ever crowned king of Israel. Now, once he's crowned king of Israel, you'd think that uh, uh, well, it'd certainly be easy for somebody to say, well, man, I fought hard enough to get here. I'm going to rest. But David did four things after he was made king that, uh, that are really the earmarks of his life. The first thing is that he, brought, uh, he captured Zion, which was the stronghold of the Jebusites in the city of Jerusalem. It's what no, is known now as the Temple Mount. And um, uh, it had uh, never been in the hands of uh, uh, the people of God. It was part of one of the, the tribes. I believe it was the tribe of Benjamin that, um, uh, that was given that territory after Joshua conquered the uh, Canaan land, the Promised Land. But when we say Joshua conquered the, the promised land, he defeated the major enemies. But he, once he divided the, uh, the kingdom up again among the, uh, the 12, well, 11 tribes. Levi didn't get inheritance. But uh, once he divided the, the kingdom up or the promised land between the tribes, it was up to them to root out any resistance and pockets of resistance that were left. Well, Benjamin never did. And so the Jebusites had maintained in the land of Israel the, um, uh, the sacred place the Temple Mount, which is also considered to be Mount Moriah, which is where Abraham offered Isaac as a, a sacrifice unto the Lord. And uh, so the first thing David did after he becomes king is he takes the, um, he captures Zion, the stronghold of Zion, and he turns that into the God's house, a uh, place of worship, and uh, also he builds his own palace there. The next thing that he did was he defeated the, the Philistines and he uh, expanded the kingdom. And God gave him victory um, specifically, we saw how when David inquired of the Lord, God gave him specific instructions of not only about winning, but how to win. And then the third thing he did, we looked at this last week, is he brought the Ark of the Covenant to uh, Jerusalem. It had been away for a number of years and it had been captured by the Philistines and created a lot of problems for them and for some other people as well. And David brought it up to, uh, to Jerusalem, but he had some trouble with that because he was... Uh, one thing about David is he, he always had the right heart about what he did, but sometimes he went about doing things his own way. And every time he did, he got himself in trouble and needed to straighten things out and inquire of the Lord and find out what God's plan was. Now, the fourth thing that David did we want to talk about tonight, and that is David's relationship with the temple. Tonight's message is David in the temple. And then let's start in chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 1. It said, And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, David's already built his house. Uh, you remember King Hiram? Uh, brought uh, to David a lot of the materials and cedar and uh, wood and all that kind of stuff that he needed. So it said, It came to pass when the king sat in his house and the Lord had given him rest round about from all of his enemies. 
Now, that doesn't mean David's not through fighting. But David had reached a place where everybody was um, pretty much afraid to come against him. Now, there's a spiritual significance to this. And let me stop here long enough to, to speak about this just for a minute or two. And that's this. There's a parallel to David's life and the Christian's life. And that is anytime we come into the family of God, one of the first things we're going to have to do is we're going to have to find the place for God in our lives. It's not enough just to be saved. We're going to have to find the place to worship, Mount Zion, in other words. We're going to have to create our own Mount Zion relationship with God. And then the next thing we're going to have to do is we're going to have to defeat our enemies. Now, for the Christian, our enemies, at least our initial enemies, are primarily primarily the flesh. And then the devil, anytime we start trying to step out upon the word and and, uh, uh, act in faith and walk by faith and so forth, then the devil will always come up and he'll raise his head up with circumstances to try to turn us away from believing God. Your biggest enemies, when you first start off in the things of God, are going to be your flesh and circumstances. Financial circumstances are one of the first things that happen, and that's why we need to learn right up front to trust God with our money. Because you're always going to need money here on the earth, and the devil knows that. And so the devil always has a, uh, an attack ready in the area of the financial realm. But there comes a time, and it's not overnight. I wish it was, but it wasn't overnight for me, and it won't be overnight for you or anybody else. But there comes a time where if you stay with the word, and folks, you need to realize perseverance is one of the greatest characteristics and one of the greatest traits that you can develop. Because things don't happen instantly. Walking with God is a lifelong adventure. It's not an experiment. And I think a lot of people go into it with that attitude. They go in with the idea that I'm going to try this. It doesn't work by trying. It works by doing. It works when those who have made a commitment that I'm going to do this no matter what the results are. Now, the Bible tells me what the results will be eventually. But I'm going to do this whether I get those eventual results soon or not. But you come to a place where you begin to conquer one by one. You'll conquer those enemies, whether it be your flesh, whether it be the circumstances. You'll add experience to your faith. You'll come to the place where little by little by little, you'll come to that place of spiritual growth and spiritual development where you'll have rest. It doesn't mean you won't have more battles to fight down the road. It doesn't mean the devil is through with you and he'll never attack you again. But it means you've come to the place where there's a a pause I don't, you know, it's, the Bible talks about uh, us growing like trees planted by the rivers of living water. You know, a tree doesn't grow the same rate or the same speed all the time. There are certain times of year where it grows and sprouts and buds and things like that. And there are other times of the year where it seems to be dormant. Well, that doesn't mean it's dead. It means there are times of rest between growth spurts. Amen? Well, that's what this is a type of. The Lord gave David rest. David's whole 30 years of being king wasn't a constant battle. Any more than your walk with the Lord will be a constant battle. It may feel like it's a constant battle, and that may just mean you haven't gotten to that place of rest yet. But it's there. Phil Howerson was a man that was greatly used of God, and he was a a man of prayer. And um, he was, uh, when I I met him, he was much older. He was probably in his uh, late 70s. Uh, in back in 1980, so he's been gone for quite a while. But he was uh, he was a man that God called to pray, and I'd never never heard of anybody like this guy. Yet, uh, and I became acquainted with him through Brother Hagin's ministry. But he was a man that um, 
that God specifically told, spoke to back in the depression days. He said, I want you to be available to prayer full time. Well, he's got a wife, he's got some kids. And, and uh, so he says, okay, Lord, I'll, I'll be ready to pray. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Anytime you want me to pray, I'll pray. Well, he was working in a mechanic shop. He described it as just a little shack by the side of the road, a dirt road. He said, I was working in a mechanic shop. He said, I had my head stuck down into a, uh, some kind of old car. And he said, the Lord came upon me and, and spoke to me loud and clear. And he said, I want you to pray and I want you to pray now. And he said, he, he, he spoke back to the Lord and he said, well, Lord, I, I'm working. It wouldn't be right for me to take time away from my employer and pray. And the Lord said, I told you I wanted you to be ready to pray, available to pray at any time. So he said, Brother Halverson said this to the Lord. He said, well, then, Lord, I guess that means I'm going to have to quit my job. He's expecting the Lord's going to say, oh, no, 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 I don't want you to do that. The Lord didn't say a word. So he quit his job. Now, folks, you've got to realize, nobody did this back then. I mean, you get people that are here faith teaching, and they'll think, oh, praise God, I can just believe God, and money will come in the mail. I'll just sit at home, watch soap operas, and money will come right in. And it never does. It never works that way. But nobody, nobody would even consider doing something like that in those days. But he prayed about it. He didn't take immediate action. He, he prayed about it and sought the Lord over it. And, and, and he said, the more I prayed, the more I thought about it, the more I had a peace on the inside. So he, did, he said, that's what I did. He said, I talked, about it, talked to my wife about it, told her what the Lord had said to me to do. And she said, uh, she said well, I'm, I'm familiar with how the Lord uses you. And he told you other things that came to pass. So, okay, if that's what you think you ought to do. I'll do my best not to worry. So he did. He quit his job. He said, man, that first 18 months was the hardest 18 months of his life. He said, I had more bills in that first 18 months than I'd ever had. He said, things that would normally work right went wrong. Everything went wrong. Everything you could imagine under the sun went wrong. He said, I had more bills to pay over the next 18 months than I'd had the previous five years put together. Well, looking back at it, he said, that it was the devil trying to discourage him from doing what God wanted him to do. We can understand that. But at the time, you're in the middle of it, and you're questioning God, did I mess up? Does this mean I messed up? Does this mean I made a mistake? He said, I'd pray and try to get God to tell me what to do. He said, the Lord would impress upon me when to pray and what to pray about, but wouldn't talk to me one word, wouldn't say one word about my finances. Not one. He said, I had the biggest struggle that I'd ever had in my life for those next, those next 18 months. He said, but at the end of those 18 months, he said, I gained a victory. He said, I gained it within myself first. He said, when I, he, he explained this to me. He said, when I say I had a victory, I don't mean the money came in. He said, I came to a place spiritually where I realized God told me to do this. It's impossible for it to fail unless I get out of faith, get in unbelief. You know, that's true. We so often look at faith as a matter of, well, well, can I believe? I mean, do I have enough faith? Do I, do I know what to do, uh, the, the right things to do? Do I know enough right things to do to make this work? Folks, faith is simply a matter of this. Is God honest? Because faith, real faith is based on his word, not some idea. But real faith is based on his word. And if you've got God's word for something, unless God's a liar, it's settled. Well, that's the breakthrough he had. He said, once I gained that victory, he said, over the next several weeks, 
He said money started coming in from unexpected sources. He said within a month, maybe six weeks from that period of time, he said those 18 months worth of bills were paid. I had enough money coming in. He said, I've never had a problem with finances since. And he told me this. This is what I was trying to get to. He said this. He said, Mike, for some reason, he took an took a, uh, interest in uh, Beth and myself and Mark and Janet Brzee just right before he died. And so he'd have us over to the house and he'd want us to pray about things, which was some kind of experience, let me tell you. But it was one of those times that he was telling me about this. And he said, Mike, once you gain a victory over something, once you cross a hurdle in the spirit, he said, you'll never have to deal with it in the same way again. He said, you may have some additional fights and some battles along the way. He said, I did. He said, I've had other things financially I've had to believe for and so forth. But he said, I've, I've never had the same battle and the same fight like I did that first time. Well, see, that's that place of rest. That's that place of rest. But you don't get there except through struggle, through conflict, and through perseverance. Are you out there? Back to verse 1. And it came to pass when the king sat in his house... And the Lord had given him rest round about from all of his enemies that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of, the Lord, ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. Now I want you to realize something else about David. And that is we see something about his character. And that is this. You need to realize this, folks. You can tell more about a person and what they do in their leisure time than any other part of their life. You find out who somebody really is during their leisure time. See, they come to church. Everybody can put on a good church face. Then go to work. And everybody can act the right way at work. But it's at your leisure time. It's when the time is available for you to do what you want to do with it. That's where you find out who people are. I've seen people destroyed by leisure time. I've had people come to me and say, Pastor Mike, God has blessed us. We just got a boat. We're going to go to the river every now and then. But don't worry. We're not going to let it take us out of church. Well, you know what happened. Took them right out of church. The blessing of God for a boat caused their leisure time to put God in second place. I've seen the same thing with other things as well. Notice what David did with his leisure time. David spent it with Nathan the prophet. You tell a lot about somebody from the people they hang around with. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 13... Verse 20, it said, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. There's something about the people you hang around with, folks. They just don't influence you. They mold you. What's the old saying? Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Now, lest you think this was a, a, just a, a one-time event with David or something like that, let me remind you of what he said in Psalm 119, verse 63. Psalm 119 is the, the, psalm, the longest psalm in the Bible, longest chapter in the Bible, where David is showing his, his uh, attitude toward God in every verse, attitude toward God and his word in every verse. Psalm 119, verse 63, here's what David said. He said, I am a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. David spent his time, free time, with godly men. I wonder if that had anything to do with him being a man after God's own heart. I've got a personal experience with this, folks, that, that uh, this, was, this was the last big hurdle that I had. Last couple of years that I was in college, um, 
I was listening to the words, listening to Brother Hagin, got a hold of some of his tapes and uh, a couple of his series. Had two during those two years and just wore them out. And uh, I was getting into the Word, starting to read and study and uh, learn a little bit about faith and, and so forth. And, um, uh, and, and the, the last thing that hung on to me, the last thing I had to let go of was my friends. My last two years of college were kind of hit and miss as far as believing God or walking with God was concerned. Because I was saying the right things, I was believing the right things. But then the weekend had come around and I'd want to go have fun with everybody else. And there was more than a couple of times where I wound up in the wrong crowd doing the wrong thing. Not really intending to. May, in, in some cases, even telling myself ahead of time, now I will not do this and did it anyway. And I realized, and I'm, you know, I'm not the smart, sharpest knife in the drawer, but I realized early, earlier on, these guys I'm hanging around with are holding me back. I, now, I'm ashamed to say I didn't do something about it as soon as I saw it, but I didn't. I kept on and kept on and kept on. And all the time, there's that still small voice on the inside saying, you're going to have to do something about this. If you're going to go forward with God, here's the Lord drawing me. You see, if you, want, if you really want to be where you say you want to be, you're going to have to let this be cut off from your life. Finally, I said, all right, that's it. I'm done with it. I'm done with these people. Half of them are making fun of me for reading the Bible anyway. They knew that I was. Half of them are making fun of me for it anyway. I'm just going to quit this. I'm going to start hanging around with godly people, which meant I had to leave leave college. Weren't any there. But I was through anyway, so it didn't matter. And that's the thing. That's the last thing that I had to do before God really started dealing with my heart about going to Bible school. Now, I'm convinced. You, you judge this for yourself. You think whatever you want to about it. But I'm convinced that if I hadn't cut that off with my friends, been willing to cut that off, God wouldn't have been able to get across to me what he wanted me to do next. David spent his time with godly people. I think that's a good example for us to follow. So then the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. You remember that David had made a tent for the ark to dwell in when he brought it back to Jerusalem. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. Now, this is not Nathan speaking by the word of the Lord. This is Nathan as a a friend, not speaking as a prophet, but as a friend to David, seeing the blessing of God upon David and upon his life and upon his kingdom and so forth. He says, boy, God's sure with you. He does not tell him to go do something about it. David doesn't even indicate that he wants to do something about it other than the fact that it needs to be done. David's not saying, he's not even bouncing anything off of Nathan that we can tell. He's not saying, I'm thinking about building a temple. What do you think? That's not what's happening. He just says, it's not right that I'm living in a house and the ark's living in a tent. And he's right. It wasn't. But now remember David's past. Remember the times that David went to war without inquiring of the Lord? Remember the times that David went running instead of inquiring of the Lord, inquiring of the prophet or the priest? about what to do each and every time he got him in trouble now god always got him out of the trouble but he always got into trouble when he didn't inquire of the lord i want to know why david didn't ask nathan to seek the lord about this because here's what he's thinking maybe he hadn't progressed that far yet maybe he's just muttering you know talking things out loud i don't know but i do know this i know nathan's answer is just a generic answer. He's not telling him, yeah, go do it, go build it. 
It's just a generic answer saying, well, the Lord sure is with you. Now notice what happens next. Verse 4, and it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, go tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, shall thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Clearly David's thinking in those terms. So God says, are you going to be the one to build the house for me? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day. But I've walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. And in all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes, the word tribes is the word judges, leaders, rulers. Spake I a word with any of the leaders or judges of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? In other words, he's saying, Have I asked anybody to build me a house? Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, fields in other words, from following the sheep to be a ruler over my people over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name like unto the name of the great man that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as beforehand. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused them to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. In other words, he's saying, now, Nathan, here's what I want you to tell David. You're not going to be the one to build me a house. I'm going to build you one. Now, he's not talking about a physical house. Because David's already built that. He's already dwelling in that. He's talking about his kingdom, the kingdom that will last forever. He's talking about being the forerunner of Jesus. And when thy days shall be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, and he did, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy, meaning the anointing, shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. And he's talking about through Jesus. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Now the scene changes. Nathan tells everything that God said. This is not Nathan's idea about the Lord being with him. This is Nathan giving specific instruction and direction to David. And God has outlined, David, God has outlined his plan for David's life regarding the temple and his future kingdom and of his son Solomon. Then went King David in and sat before the Lord. Now, I want you to compare verse 1 and verse 18. And it came to pass when the king sat in his house. Verse 18, then went King David in and sat before the Lord. In other words, now he's in the tent. Now, what does David do when he goes into the tent where the Ark of the Covenant is? What does David do when he goes before the Lord and finds out he's not going to be able to build the temple that he wants to build? David went in. King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? Now, notice what he's not doing. 
David is not complaining that he's not going to be able to do what he wants to do. Here's another characteristic of David, and that is submission is more often identified and recognized through patience than it is through action. And it's a whole lot easier to act than it is to wait. Have you ever noticed that the Bible says they that act upon what God tells them to do shall renew their strength? No, it doesn't say that. It says they that wait upon the Lord. In other words, there's a time to act, but there's a time to be still and be quiet. God is telling David, you're going to have to spend the rest of your life being quiet and still where, it come, where the, the temple is concerned. Now, even now when we talk about the temple, whose temple is it? Well, God lived there. The presence of God dwelt there when Solomon dedicated, but don't we call it Solomon's temple? Don't you think David would like to, to have been called David's temple? And here's something that we need to realize, and that is a lot of times we make up our own ideas about what we want God to use us to do. Now, David's learned some real important lessons about not doing what other people do. He's already tried that on a couple of occasions, and it didn't work out very well for him at all. Instead of inquiring of the Lord, he just did things the way that seemed right to him, and he messed up. Cost one man his life. But it's so easy to look around, especially in the church, modern-day church. It's so easy to look around at what other people are doing and say, well, that looks great. We ought to do that. And so often, I, I wish, boy, I wish I had a nickel for every time I, I could retire a rich man. If I had a nickel for every time somebody came to me and said, Pastor Mike, here's what our church ought to do. And all they're doing is telling me about some program they know from another church or saw in a church that they came from or something like that. And the assumption is this works great at the church that I just came from. So we need to do that here. Really? Bible says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it. Folks, this is one thing that Brother Hagin hammered into us. Just because somebody else is doing something and just because it looks like it's working does not mean it's God's plan for you. And he told us it from a, a point of uh, position of experience because he had seen so many ministries go down the tubes because they saw the success of somebody else and so they tried to copy or mimic it. You probably heard, if you remember hearing him say it, he said thousands of times that at almost every meeting that he ever had, and this went on for year after year after year after year, at almost every meeting that he had, especially during the 50s and the 60s, somebody, at least one person, would prophesy to him how God wanted him to go get a tent. Well, everybody else had tents. The healing revival was being conducted in a tent. There were tent revivals everywhere, all over the country. It would have been so easy to fall into that trap. But that's not what God told him to do. We see things that other people are doing, and there are always hot-button issues in the body of Christ. Always have been, always will be. And whatever is popular, everybody seems to glom onto that. Here's what we need to do. Whether it be teaching, whether it be a ministry style or operation or something like that, it's all the same thing. I would, be, I would venture to say, and you, you, you judge this for yourself. Think whatever you want to about it or me or whatever. I don't care. But 75% of the people out there that are teaching the grace message aren't teaching it because God has put it on their heart to teach it. They're teaching it because they see it working for somebody else and drawing a big crowd. 
Same thing's true with the way churches operate. The seeker-sensitive, the seeker-friendly church. Why did that explode around the country? Because God told everybody to do it? Well, if God told everybody to do it, how come it only works in, in various and in, in rare occasions? You got a couple of big-name churches and a couple of big-name success stories, but most of the times, seeker-sensitive church, seeker-friendly churches are some of the smallest ones in town. You don't hear about those. Well, if the pattern is of God in every, in every case, in every situation, why didn't it work everywhere? Folks, I've fallen into this trap too. It's so easy to look at something that somebody else is doing and think, well, that'd be great. I'd like their success. But you can't get somebody else's success doing what they're doing. Because if they're really successful, their success is rooted in the fact that that's what God told them to do. Notice David. David just says, Lord, why are you so good to me? He's not complaining. He's not saying, but I want to build you a temple. Nobody wants to build a temple for you more than me. And I don't doubt, I have no doubts in my, in my mind whatsoever that he wants it for the right reasons. He's not trying to make a name for himself. He really has a genuine concern for the temple. He has a genuine concern for God to have a, a, a place where the people can come to, the people can offer sacrifices, where they can go back to worshiping like they used to do before they turned away. I don't have any doubt that he wants it for the right reasons. But that doesn't always dictate and determine what God wants done or how. So David says, Lord, why are you so good to me? And why have you been so good to my family? And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God. But thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? In other words, he's saying, and is this just the word of man or is it really you? Well, he knows it's him. And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. Notice his attitude. For thy word's sake. And according to thine own heart, hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. Now, what is he talking about? He's saying, you've revealed to me what my future is. Folks, God will tell you your future if you'll, if you'll pursue it. God will show you your future. Most people won't spend the time necessary to find out, but God will show you. If it's something that's important to you, if it's something that's it, that you're interested in, genuinely from your heart are interested in and are willing to pursue it, God will show you your future. Short term and long term. He doesn't have any problem you knowing what the end is going to be. I heard Lester Summerall say this years and years ago, 50 some odd years ago. Well, that can't be right. Well, back in the 80s, however long ago that was. I heard him say, I asked the Lord, what's my end going to be? Show me my end of days. My ears perked up and I thought, can you do that? He started talking about what he prayed and how God showed him. I thought, man, that's pretty cool. I want to know that too. Now, I want to know now for the different reason than I wanted to know then. But God will show you. God will show you. God's got a plan for you. And it may not be your plan for you. Uh, uh, I'm sorry for taking rabbit trails on this, but I'll get back to it in a minute. When I was working with Brother Hagen, this was 1981, I guess. Um, I got word from uh, Brother Hagen's office 
that there was a special guest coming to town and I was supposed to pick him up at the, at the hotel, certain hotel downtown, bring him out to Raymond. He was going to share in the, the chapel thing that they have on Tuesdays and Thursdays, whatever day it was of the week. They were going to have a special chapel service and he was going to speak to the crowd and, and, uh, and this kind of stuff. Well, I always wanted to find out, well, who are they? Give me some information about them so that I'll you know, be able to speak intelligently to them and that kind of stuff. And, um, and so I'd always kind of do some background information. Well, it was Reinhard Bonnke. Now, folks, you may not know this, but in 1981, nobody knew Reinhard Bonnke. At least nobody in America did. He was known overseas. He was having meetings over there and hundreds of thousands of people showing up for tent meetings in Africa and, and that kind of stuff. But nobody knew him here. He was just starting to come over and, and uh, gain uh, just the, the slightest bit of notoriety. But he could walk through any crowd. Nobody would know him. Nobody recognized him. Nobody knew him back then. So I picked him up the, at the uh, hotel and uh, uh, said hello, introduced myself to him and told him what a pleasure it was to meet him and, and heard so many wonderful things about his meetings and how God was using him and so forth, just trying to, you know, make him feel comfortable and stuff and really hit it off with he and his wife. They were both together, really hit it off with him. And uh, uh, so we were driving out to school and, and uh, he, said, uh, he said, Mike, can I ask you a favor? And I said, certainly, I'll do anything I can. He said, I want to meet T.L. Osborne. I said, okay. I'm thinking, and how does that concern me? And he said, could you call his office and see if he could meet with me? And I'm thinking, well, like me calling his office is going to do anything in the world. I said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, I'll have Brother Hagin's office call. That'll carry a lot of weight. So we'll see if we can get something worked out while you're in the chapel service, and we'll let you know afterwards. How's that? He said, that'd be great. Thank you so much. Well, it worked out. Brother Osborne knew who he was, of course, because... He's been all over the world, had been all over the world at that time already. And uh, so I took him over there to the, to the um, offices. Um, this is probably before most of your time. And, uh, and, and if you've never been to Tulsa, it may not mean anything to you anyway. But um, T.L. Osmond used to have a world museum uh, of all the hundred and some odd countries he'd been to or whatever the number was. He was, uh, he was a collector. And so he'd collect things, and, and there was, uh, it was very common for heads of state to, uh, to meet him and be a, uh, present him something at one of his crusades or some special ceremony when he got into the country and that kind of stuff. And so he had a collection of all these things, and it was a huge, huge warehouse full of stuff. Well, he was just closing that uh, museum, and so there were only a few things. He sold off a lot of stuff, and there were only a few things that, uh, that he was uh, left with. He had a great big office. And, uh, and he had it stacked up with stuff, and there were shelves and all of these kind of things, uh, you know, um, oh, what am I trying to say, racks of shelves with, uh, with different stuff like that. Well, I took him over to the office. It was the only part of the building that was still uh, being used at the time. They were in the process of selling the building and moving to some other headquarters. And uh, so I took him into the, to the, uh, the lobby. And I presented them there to the secretary, and she said, oh, we'll get Brother Osborne right away. And so I went off. They had a little uh, kind of a circular atrium thing with some sofas over there. So I just went over and sat down. I'm going to sit there and wait for them until they're finished with their meeting and that kind of stuff. Brother Osborne comes out into the, into the lobby. They greet each other and say hello. And Brother Bonke, you could just see it in his eyes. He was, he was so blessed. He had such respect for Brother Osborne. And uh, so I'm, uh, I'm nobody. It wasn't then, not now. Brother Osborne would recognize me because of the, uh, I'm usually the one that meets dignitaries and special guests and stuff like that when they come over to the campus. So I'd had that much experience with him, but 
But outside of that, that was it. So I'm standing over there, and he comes into the lobby. So I stand up. I'm over on the couch. I stand up, but I didn't interject myself into the thing or whatever. And uh, so Brother Osmond said to the bonkies, he said, well, come on into my office. He said, let's talk. So they started walking away, and so I sat back down on the couch. Brother Osmond said, no, no, you too, young man, you too. Come, come with us. I look around and see who he's talking to. What he meant me. So I walked into the office, and uh, like I said, the, the remnants of the museum were there stacked up in his office and, and, and really not displayed much. But I sat over in the corner by the shrunken heads. I felt right at home. And uh, so they had a they had a nice meeting and, and talked about some things, uh, talked about reaching Africa, which was Brother Bonke's mission at the time, and, and that kind of stuff. And, and so he said, uh, time was up. And, and so Brother Osmond said, well, let's pray. So they gathered together, and I'm still over in the corner. Brother Osmond looked over at me, and he said, you too, young man, come. You, could, you know how to pray, don't you? And I said, well, <laughs> I'm thinking, I don't know if I know how to pray like what you guys are going to pray, but, you know, I just kind of snuck over into the, to the group. And uh, so Brother Osmond prayed, and he prayed a nice prayer about Bonke, and he prayed a nice prayer for God to use him in his ministry and so forth. And then all of a sudden, he started praying for me. And man, I felt so uncomfortable. I'm thinking, this is, this is Bonke's meeting. He's the, you know, what's up with this? Now, part of that is, was, was Brother Osborne's makeup. Brother Osborne would treat everybody the same no matter who they were. He wasn't impressed with anybody, and he wouldn't leave anybody out under any circumstance. And so I'm standing there thinking, well, okay, this is, this is just this, and this is just, I know this enough about him to know this is the way he is and stuff. But he started praying for me, and, uh, and I'm, my head is spinning a little bit, trying to figure out what's going on here. So I missed the first part of what he prayed. But then I, I, I caught on to what he was saying, and he said this. And he said, and Lord, don't let his vision outgrow your plan for his ministry. Amen. I thought, thanks a lot. That doesn't sound real good. Don't let his vision outgrow your plan for his ministry. Now, you tell me, doesn't that kind of mean don't let him get big-headed? Uh, that's the way I took it. I, 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 I'm just going to be honest with you. That hurt my feelings. But I had a lot of respect for Brother, Brother Osborne then and now, still, since even though he's in heaven. And so I, I've thought about that so many times over the years. And it's, it's really helped me in a lot of ways. I appreciate that. It took me a while to grow into it, to where I could accept it. But I've seen a lot of people wind up on the junk heap because their vision outgrew God's plan for their ministry. I've seen a lot of people get themselves in financial trouble because they had a bigger vision than God had a bigger, than the size of God's plan. I've seen a lot of people go out with something that they thought was boldness, this daredevil boldness, and it was just foolishness because they didn't have the plan of God to begin with. Their vision outgrew what God's plan was. It's always helped me stay steady. Now, I don't know what God's plan is. I don't know what the ultimate plan is. But I know this. I know that the more I've dealt with it and the more I've, um, well, initially I struggled with it. But the more I've dealt with it and the more I've accepted it, the more it's brought me to a place of peace and satisfaction in the things of God. See, folks, I don't have to be a big-name somebody unless that God, that's God's plan. It's reminded me of when Brother Hagin used to pray about the, the work of the Lord being done. And he said, Lord, I'm not asking you to use me. He said, I'm willing to sit on the creek bank and drink branch water and eat wild onions. Just let me pastor a little church somewhere. I'm just praying for the work of God to be done. 
Well, he meant that. And that was one of the reasons why God was able to use him because he didn't have to be used himself. He's just praying for God's will. That's the attitude that David has here, folks. He just wants God's will to be done. He just wants the word of the Lord to be accomplished. He doesn't have to be the one to do it, even though he's willing to. When he finds out from the Lord that it'll be a son that does it, he's just as happy with that as otherwise. Back to verse 20. And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy word's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. In other words, he's saying, you've led me every step of the way to show me who you are and the the value of your word. Wherefore thou art great, O Lord. Notice he's magnifying God. Wherefore thou art great, O Lord. For there is none like thee, neither is any, any God beside thee according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself and to make him a name and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt and from the nations and their gods. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever. And thou, Lord God, art become their God. And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as thou hast said. Notice David's prayer of thanksgiving even contains expectancy for the word of God to be realized. Folks, true faith is, is, is not only recognizes that God is a God of promise, but God is a God of fulfillment. That's why circumstances, contrary to, to what you believe, that's why adversity won't injure true faith. Now, it'll injure head faith. But circumstances won't injure, uh, adverse, adverse circumstances won't injure true faith. Because true faith is based on God's word with the knowledge that God is faithful, who not only promised, but will also bring it to pass. Verse 25 again, And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as thou hast said. And let thy name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. Why? Is David wanting something for himself? No. That's what God said he'd do. Be it unto me even as thou hast spoken. For thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, has revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee a house. He understands it's not talking about a physical structure. He's talking about a family, a kingdom, a lineage. For thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, has revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee a house. Therefore has thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. In other words, I'm praying this based on what you said. I'm not asking this on my own. And if you hadn't said it, if you hadn't made this revelation plain to me, I wouldn't be asking for the things that I'm asking for. But you said so. So I'm just asking you to perform and confirm your word. And now, O Lord God, thou art that true God, that thy words be... I'm sorry, I messed that up. And now, verse 28 again, And now, O Lord God, thou art that God, and thy words be true, that thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Therefore now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it, and with thy blessing let the house of thy servant be blessed 
forever. Folks, one of the things that you're going to recognize about David and everything you read, whether it's the Psalms or whether it's the life of David, whether it's his prayer, his communication with God, you'll always find that everything that he does is based on God's word. Now, he's, he's human. He's fallible. We see him making mistakes when he doesn't inquire of the Lord to get direction or he doesn't seek in the case of bringing the ark up to Jerusalem, he didn't seek out the word to find out how does this work? How do you do this? He just assumed, well, I'm king. I'll have him make a new cart. That didn't work out very well. So he's not infallible, certainly. But David had enough of the character in the heart of God to realize that God's word, once spoken, is eternal. And David had a greater expression of appreciation for the word of God than anybody else that that we have record of that wrote the Psalms. And that's what the Psalms are all about. The Psalms are about David's appreciation for God's word. That's what made him a man after God's own heart. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus was approached by somebody and they said, boy, your mother must be something. Blessed is the woman that nursed you. And Jesus answered and said, well, yeah, she is blessed. But greater blessing belongs to those that hear my word and keep them. Why? Because God's word is everything to him. God has exalted his word above his name. Shouldn't we too? Shouldn't we have the same place of of appreciation for the word of God? And shouldn't the word of God hold the same place of authority that God intended for it to hold? That's the character and the attitude of David. Even when he found out from the Lord that he wasn't going to be able to do the things for God that he wanted to do. He's okay with that. He's willing to do whatever God wants. Now let me close with this. Turn with me over to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. So David can't build the temple. What's he going to do now? He spends the rest of his life gathering money for it. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. I'm going to read this. This is the end of David's life. Chapter 29 verse 1. Furthermore, David, the king said unto the congregation, Solomon, my son, he's been born by now. Solomon, my son, whom alone alone God has chosen, is yet young and tender, and the work is great, for the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. Talking about the temple. Now I have prepared with all my might. That means he used great effort to do so. When did he start doing that? Well, he really stepped up his efforts once. He found out God's plan was for Solomon to build it. Now I have prepared with all my might for the house of my God, the gold for things to be made of gold and the silver for things of silver, the brass for things of brass, the iron for things of iron and wood for the things of wood, onyx stones and stones to be set, glistening stones and of diverse colors and all manner of precious stones and marble stones in abundance. Moreover, in addition, because I have set my affection to the house of my God, David didn't stop caring about the temple as much when he found out he wouldn't, build, wouldn't be able to build it. He started caring about it even more. Moreover, because I have set my affection to the house of my God, I have my, of mine own proper good. In other words, this is my offering of gold and silver, which I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house. In other words, he's saying the stuff that I talked about in verse 2, that's what I prepared for the house as the king. This stuff that I'm about to tell you is what I've given as a personal gift out of my own treasury even 3,000 talents of gold to the gold of Ophir and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay with the walls of the houses with all the gold for things of gold and silver for things of silver and for all manner of work to be made by the hands of artificers 
And who then is willing to consecrate his service this day unto the Lord? This is um, the amount that's identified, 3,000 talents, is somewhere in the neighborhood of $4 billion in present day money. And that's not a bad offering. The silver is about, uh, what would it be less now? It's about, uh, oh, what would it be? About $150 million worth. Verse 6, Then the chief of the fathers and princes of the tribes of Israel, this is the leaders and the, the elders, and the captains of thousands and of hundreds, these are the, the army people, the, the, many of them are David's mighty men that were with him from the beginning, with the rulers of the king's worth offered king's work, offered willingly and gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 drams of, and of silver, 10,000 talents and of brass, 18,000 talents and 100,000 talents of iron. Now this amount is about, uh, let's see, what would that be? It'd be about um, 10 billion in gold. It would be about 1 billion in silver. And the, the amount of brass and iron, there's no way to value that. So it's just amounts and tonnage. Verse uh, 8, and they with whom were precious stones, there's no way to value these because we don't know what they were or how many there were. And they that were, whom with, with precious stones were found gave them to the treasure of the house of the Lord by the hand of Jehiel, the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced for that they offered willingly because with a perfect heart they offered willingly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced with a great joy. Now let me ask you a question. And here's really the point and, the, and the, uh, the, the type or the example that David is for the modern-day church, and that is this. The money is not something that we're supposed to look at and say, wow, I'm going to believe God for a $4 billion offering too. That's stupid. It represents something. And what it represents is that David was the one that provided the resources for the building of the temple. Remember, Jesus said upon the knowledge that he was the Son of God, he would build his church. But folks, you need to realize, Jesus is not the one building the church in the sense that he's doing the work. Jesus is the one that provides the ability for the work to be done by his sacrifice and resurrection and his conquest. But the church, you and I are the ones that are doing the building work. Just like Solomon was the one that did the building work, but David's the one that provided all the resources for it to be done. That's the example that we have. Now, the numbers are staggering. But David and the, the, the people gave the building of the temple and they're supposed to be staggering because it represents the power that we have in the name of jesus and folks that power is staggering whether we accept it or not whether we recognize it whether we use it or not it's staggering because it's all the greatness and the power of god amen let's pray father we thank you for your word we thank you for the example that david is that we have the ability to follow thank you lord that as we incorporate these characteristics into our own lives, we develop the character of Jesus. There's nothing more important for the world to see that that we have the same character, the same heart, the same mercy, the same love, the same life that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, has. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done for us through the risen Savior. In Jesus' precious name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.